Well, please welcome our beloved brother in Christ, Russ Baker, longtime ARF member and pastor of Westview Christian Church. And please stand as we turn to John 1, as he will bring us God's word from John 1, 1 through 18 this evening. Now bring us to Christ, brother. Well, good evening. Uh, if, if you would, I, I would ask you to remain standing as we, we, we are accustomed to do this at Westview. And I'd ask you to open in your Bibles to John 1, and we're going to be reading, as, as Grant already said, verses 1 through 18. But once again, before we read, I'd like to, for us to go to the Lord in prayer. And so pray with me one more time, if you would, please. Father, we do thank you for the great privilege that we have to gather as the greater body of Christ, uh, sister churches and, and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to, to worship your, your name, to give you all the praise and glory that you are due. We ask, Lord, that as we come before your word, that you would speak, that it would be powerful, uh, that it would be living and active, and that it would accomplish all of its purposes here in each of our hearts as you have promised that it always does. So we thank you for that, we lean into that, and we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in John 1, 1 through 18, and uh, this is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me, for from his fullness all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. So now, this is the second sermon series for those who maybe haven't been with us or weren't with us during the first series that we are doing on the Apostles' Creed. Um, And what I would like to do once again uh, is to read the text of the Apostles' Creed for us, and then we'll get into our scripture and hopefully this will all begin to make sense. And so I want to read the, the text of the Apostles' Creed. It reads, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Now I know that this is probably not anything that's new to most of you in here, uh, but in case there's not... In case there's someone who isn't quite familiar with the context of the Apostles' Creed, it's called the Apostles' Creed, but most believe that it probably wasn't written by the Apostles themselves, although, depending on your source, many would have it rising out of the very early baptismal confessions of the early church. And so it does encapsulate the teachings that the Apostles laid out before the church. And it is the basic core belief that all all Christians who would be Orthodox Christians would hold to. And this is why we decided as our pastors to work through this ancient creed of the church. But now this evening, I'm beginning the second portion of the creed, what we believe about Jesus Christ. And so I'll be covering the incarnation, and then Jeremy next time will be tackling Christ's redemptive work. Uh, which we'll see later. So the portion we'll be focusing upon this evening is this. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In short, we're talking about the incarnation of Christ. But even here, we can divide this, this very short portion of the Creed into two main sections. And this is why I chose John's prologue as in his gospel account as the scriptural basis for this portion. And, I, and, I, and, and it's important for us to acknowledge that we need to do that, right? Because all of the creeds are only authoritative in, in so much as they are consistent with the authoritative word of God. And so we would want to know that if we're going to confess this creed as Orthodox Christians, we would want to know that it finds its basis in the word of God. And so I chose John's prologue because it kind of has the same two basic distinctions that we see in our portion of the creed. The description of Jesus, the eternal son who was in the beginning with God and was God, and the incarnate son, Jesus the Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so we're going to follow that pattern. That's the basic pattern of what I have been assigned this evening as we delve deeper into both the early creed and the word of God that stands behind it behind it and so if you would I would like to ask you to open back with me if you have your Bibles I'd I'd like for you to keep them there keep them open open with me to John 1 and let's begin to unfold the mystery of the identity and incarnation of Jesus our Lord and so once again The Apostles' Creed, in describing Christ, says this, We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And as we begin to look at this and consider what it means, let me just say that I think it's very easy for us to take these little, these brief little snippets in the creed and read right by them and not really think about what is being implied and what is said and what is not said. And in doing so, we miss the glory of the, of the identity of Jesus Christ. So now, first and foremost, the creed, you'll notice, 
doesn't begin with the miraculous conception of Christ and his birth. Now, why is that something that's important that we would want to bring out? Well, what it does in doing this is it begins by identifying Jesus as something altogether greater. And what I mean by that is he's not just a man who is then later adopted by God at his baptism, as many of the ancient heresies would claim. He precedes that miraculous birth. In fact, there was not a time when he wasn't. That's kind of why it starts where it does. This is why in studying the creed this evening, we also read John chapter 1. And so look with me at that first section of John's prologue. I think it kind of, you'll see how it ties together. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, we have already in our, at our last ARF service talked about God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But here we are presented with the unique and only eternal Son of God, the Word, who John says was in the beginning, meaning that he was already there before there was a beginning, and was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God, and we see that all things were made through him. In other words, and don't miss the implication here, the word, the pre-incarnate son of God is God. And at the same time, distinction can be made between the person of the father and the person of the son. We see this in the fact that he was with God. There's your distinction And at the same time, the word was God. There's your unity, one God in three persons. Likewise, we saw last time that the Father, the Almighty, is described as creator of heaven and earth. But we see here in John 1 that that Christ was the one who created all things and there was nothing that was created that wasn't created by him. And so here in John, the only Son, our Lord, is the agent through whom the Father created all things. But all this is just what we can gather from the order of the creed itself. But there's much more we can glean from each of its parts. And so let's look at the first clause itself. Again, it says, and I'm adding we believe, because remember, this is something we confess together. We believe in Jesus Christ. Now think about all that is wrapped up in this name itself. Jesus or Joshua was not the name that Mary or Joseph came up with. Remember, that's not how it took place. Remember, this was from God himself. Matthew 1, 21 through 23 says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And so it's fitting that this would be his name since Yahweh, and since it actually means Yahweh saves or Yahweh delivers. For in the person of Christ, Yahweh is indeed saving his people from their sins. Now we also see that the creed calls him Christ, which means anointed one, the Messiah. 
And if you consider for a moment all that is invested in what it means to be the anointed one. Now I know there, there are, are the ways that this is thrown around in charismatic circles and all of that at times can be ridiculous. But understand that it had a context. We know, for instance, that in the Old Testament, there were specific people who were anointed. In the Old Testament, it was prophets, priests, and kings of Israel were anointed before God for service to the people of God. As they represented those people as mediators of sorts, the prophets spoke the words of God to the people of God. The priests interceded on behalf of the people in sacrifices and offerings, representing the people to God and then in this, at the same time representing God to the people. The kings ruled as vice regents of God over his people. Now why is all of this important to consider and why is it wrapped up in this little clause of the Apostles' Creed? Because all of the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings were still just sinful sons of Adam. Pointing forward as types of the one who was to come. Jesus, the anointed one, full of the Spirit to the full, to the uttermost. He is the true prophet of which there can be no greater. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It literally says he has exegeted him such that when you hear the word of Christ, they are the words of God. When you see Christ, you have seen the father. Christ is the true and greater high priest. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ is also king of kings. We read of his unveiling in Revelation 19.11, and I want to read this because it's a startling thing. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now because he is the one who saves his people from their sin, because he is true prophet, because he is the great high priest and the king of kings and lord of lords, the creed adds that he is our Lord. And friends, he is our Lord, for we are his people. As Paul so wonderfully expressed it in Ephesians 2, 13 through 22, he says, But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. And so hopefully you can see when you think about just that simple little phrase, there's so much more behind it than what we realize and even the order of it. And we'll get into this in just a second. As we look at his identity and his, and his eternal nature, we now turn to the second phrase, which is the incarnation. And it reads, Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And, and of course, if we're going to go back to Scripture, the corresponding passage in John's prologue verses reads this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now as we get into this last little section of what I'm covering this evening in in the Apostles' Creed. There has a lot, much has been said and speculated concerning the conception and the birth of Christ to the Virgin Mary. And I'm uh, I'm not going to delve into all of the different theories about what actually took place. There is much mystery involved with the light of the world coming into the world that he created, the word becoming flesh. And many have likened this mystery, and I think properly so, to the mystery of the Godhead being three in one. They are equal in their their mysterious nature and their unexplainableness and their unknowableness. And hopefully you can feel the tension in this. How can the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent one enter into the finite temporal world that he created? And and much less a, a sin cursed world and if you were hoping that we could pull back the curtain and reveal the glorious mystery here this evening I'm afraid that I have bad news for you Uh, scripture doesn't often give us the how and the why but simply declares to us as we would read in Deuteronomy 29 29 the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law 
And so there are secret things, in fact, that God doesn't tell us why or how. And the how of the incarnation is one of those mysteries. But as Deuteronomy 29, 29 also says, the things that are revealed belong to us. And there is much that we do have revealed. For instance, we do get an inkling for why this had to be. Why, why does Christ have to come into the world that he created? Well, it goes back to the garden. And if you've been with us at Westview or any time for the last months and months, we've been going back to the garden over and over and over because it's the pivotal event in human history that leads us to where Christ is necessary. We see it in the creation of the first Adam. Genesis 2.5 says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And we know how this goes from here, don't we? Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. Then they're tempted in the garden and they fall into sin. And in by that sin corrupt themselves and all who would come through them and from them. The entire race of man enslaved to sin through the one man Adam. And so it was fitting that then that in bringing Fourth, the second Adam into the world, he would not come as a corrupt son of Adam, but his birth too would be by way of a powerful working of the spirit, the same way that the first Adam was created. We read in Luke 1.30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God." And so the son was not brought about by natural means, but instead by the supernatural overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense that it would be this way, doesn't it? We see this also in Genesis. Genesis 3.15 to be exact, in God's cursing of the serpent after the fall. There we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, again, this is given to the serpent. And so there is a measure of irony, I think, that in the proclamation to the serpent of the curse of God upon him, we might find the first inkling of the glory of the gospel. And notice that it isn't the seed of the man who would crush the serpent's head. It's the seed of the woman. And in the portion of of Luke we read a few minutes ago the announcement of the angel to Mary surely we see we see the very fulfillment of this promise as the virgin conceives by the power of the holy spirit and now along with the conception by the holy spirit the creed adds that he was born 
of the Virgin Mary. And this would seem like a redundancy, wouldn't it? If it says in the first portion that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, it would seem to be redundant to then say he was born by the Virgin Mary. Well, why does it do that? If Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, why is it then necessary to add that he was born of the Virgin Mary? Well, think about what what has given birth to most all of the creeds in the history of the church as they're formulated and brought forth and, and, and put forward for all the church to confess. As with almost all ancient creeds and confessions, and in fact the ones that we confess ourselves, the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession, they were all born out of a need to guard against heresy and false teaching, against distortion of the word of God. And so wrapped up in this declaration that he was born of the Virgin Mary, not only is the notion that Christ was somehow the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary denied, but also the Gnostic tendency to spiritualize everything as well. You see, the word that became flesh actually did become flesh. Christ was truly born. He didn't just materialize as a man. He wasn't just in the appearance of flesh as some sort of embodied spirit. He was born a child, truly man, who was, as the scriptures point out in Luke, a child who grew and learned. After his circumcision on the eighth day, Luke gives us this early childhood summary, and, and he does this twice. And they give us really the, all that we know about that time in Christ's life. And it says this, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then Luke is going to sum up his later years just a few verses later by adding this. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in the favor of God and man. Now, I would ask you, why is that important? Because, friends, if Jesus wasn't truly man, how could he be our covenant representative before God? How could he stand in our, in our place if he were not truly one of us, our kinsman redeemer to borrow from the book of Ruth? How could he bridge that insurmountable gulf that separates a holy and just and righteous God from all of us as sinful men? And the answer is he wouldn't. He couldn't. And scripture talks about this very thing in many places, but we're going to zero in on just a few for example. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 says this, and this is the preacher of Hebrews. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
And so Jesus had to be born. He had to be truly God and truly man in order that he might be our great high priest and represent us before God and represent God before us. Again, Romans 5, the Apostle Paul leans into the humanity of Christ saying this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." And then in a very, in one last, very succinct way, Paul really sums up the whole necessity that the Apostles' Creed is is, uh, capturing for us. This whole necessity that Christ be both truly God and truly man. In 1 Timothy 2.5, the Apostle Paul notes this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man. Christ Jesus. Do you see why all of this is such important things for us to confess? But I'm not going to belabor the point any longer. Uh, Hopefully you all can see the importance of these three seemingly simple lines from an ancient creed that we all confess. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus, the Word, who was in the beginning and was with God and was God, the one through, through whom all things were made, infinite creator, and yet the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, truly God and truly man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so with that, I'd ask you to pray with me if you would. Lord God, we thank you for these great, simple, and yet very profound truths of your word and of the ancient church that have passed them down to us. We're grateful, Lord, for its power. We're grateful for the truth of it. We're grateful that you truly have made a way for sinful men to to approach you through our kinsman redeemer who gave himself as a propitiation, as a sacrifice in our place that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we're so grateful, Lord, for these things. Ask that you would strengthen us by them, Pray that your gospel in all of its glory and power would go forth for the salvation of souls. And so we, we give this time to you. We thank you for it. And we confess it as one body together in one spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.